HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit surreyfarms.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and we are broadcasting live from the back of Roberta's at 261 Moore Street in Bushwick, Brooklyn, where brunch is now being served. My guest in studio today is the wonderfully accomplished Libby Summers. Libby is a writer, a culinary producer, and a stylist for both television and print media. Her first solo book, The Whole Hog Cookbook, which she was on this show for last year, uh, was a National Forward Book Award finalist with accolades from the New York Times to Fox News. I'm surprised you even put that on your... <laughs> it was funny. <laughs> Don't you think it was funny? I do. Yeah. Um, and her second solo book, which will be coming out in another year, will be Sweet and Vicious Baking with an Attitude. She also maintains a blog called Salted and Styled. And I highly recommend taking a look at Libby's... Um, website, but don't do it when you're hungry. (laughs) (laughs) And Libby is coming to us from Savannah, Georgia, a Georgia peach. Are you originally from Georgia? No, from Missouri. Yeah. It's the same though, right? I don't know. I mean, I'm so unfamiliar. I I, I don't really think of Missouri as the South. It is. There's a ton of similarities. I don't have an accent. Most newscasters, Katie, aside from yourself, news people apparently are from the Midwest because there's not much of an accent. Oh, really? Yeah, but I've been in the South long enough that I have a little bit. Not really, though. I, I'm so pleased because, I, you know, at the risk of um, offending my Southern listeners, should there be any, no, do um, I, <laughs> I, um, I really, I find that the thicker the accent, the less I trust the individual with said accent. Uh, that could be just my New York prejudice coming out. But no, Katie, it's the truth. And I can tell you, I grew up in the same house. My older sister moved to Atlanta a few years before I did, and I don't recognize a word she says because they belong to the swim tennis club. Oh dear. Yeah, I was like, we, I know we come from the same place. Where did this accent come yeah, from? Yeah, really. But I remember when I was um, flacking for books. I know we're going off on a tangent here, and I do want to ask you what you've been up to. But, um, but 
when I was doing um, publicity for books, I remember calling up um, a paper in the South. I can't remember whether it was in Alabama or Georgia or whatever. And the girl that I was talking to um, eventually revealed to me that she was actually from up north, but she had a really thick Southern accent. And I said, what's with the accent, girlfriend? And she said, honey, I don't fit in without the accent. I'll get treated like a Yankee. That was that's good, a bad Katie. Thing. That was very designing women of you. That <laughs> accent. That's nice. One of I the sugar sh- bakers. Oh yeah, baby. I'm a sugar baker. <laughs> so anyway, now you're here in New York City for a pre visit and tell yes. us what you're doing here and also tell us about your recent trip to France, because I'm very curious about that. I'm just here a celebrating a birthday and coming and hanging out with you. But I had some Fabulous. I had some book signings and you know, we're still promoting the whole hog cookbook. It's been doing really well. I'm really proud of it. So I'm still up here doing that and visiting your friends, visiting friends and celebrating birthdays. And I stopped by David Blaine's electrified crazy last night. Oh, no kidding. Where is that? I haven't seen that yet. It's down on the one of the peers in Chelsea. It's retarded. Oh, yeah. He's, he is such a weird retard. The last thing I saw <laughs> of his was when he had the, the bowl, the big water bowl, the tank on uh, Lincoln Center. Oh, yeah, yeah And he yeah. was immersed in the tank for like, you know, I don't know, eight weeks or something. And, he, and he, I don't know how he survives this stuff, actually. I mean, it's so cockamamie. And it's really like, why? why but it's a great this? advertisement. I think it's an Intel kind of commercial the whole thing mm-hmm. but it's it's fantastic so what is he doing in this particular he's getting thing? electrified it's like this whole young frankenstein looking oh my thing god so he's like twitching and, and, and around the world you can send more volts to him if you want to oh and my god live tweeting going on and computers that is so everywhere. sadistic libby it's pretty cool apparently he's being they said um he's being hydrated somehow and also he must be it's coming out too <laughs> so yeah. i was like how are you up there it's three days or three Disgusting. The fifth through the eighth. I know. I don't know. I mean, I, who who pr- promotes? Well, we'll talk about this after okay. the show. I don't care about it. <laughs> anyway, so you are just back from a trip to France where you were in Paris for a few days and then you were in the country. So tell me what you were doing there and tell us about like what's the culinary scene in France? Like they, what's hot there? What are, what are the trends? Who's groovy? Who's, who's doing something interesting? Well, I was very lucky. Um, I went over, I was in the, in the Gascony area um, doing a food. Ooh. I know. Yeah. And Armagnac, right? Oh, yes. It's all about the Armagnac <laughs> and the foie gras. Oh, man. Um, I was staying. There's a wonderful woman by the name of Kate Hill, who's an expat who lives just outside of Agen. She's an old, she's a, she used to run a barge, and her barge is, is parked right outside of her, her old stone farmhouse. But she teaches charcuterie class and butchery class. Cool. And also, a few times a year, she works with a friend of hers that they do a food photography workshop, and that's how it came to be with me. I was I see. Soul student. His name is Tim Clinch. He's fabulous. He's a little international playboy. Um, was British Photographer of the Year this past year. Anyway, so I was there working with them while I was there, which was wonderful. Um, David Leibovitz, who's a friend of Kate's, came in for three days. So he was also there just kind of hanging out and getting out of Paris. So he gave me the inside scoop on where to go when I was heading back to Paris. Awesome. So to have that, for somebody to tell you, you have to eat here, I'm like, where can I get an authentic French bistro meal? meal? Because they're... They, they it, really are to hard to by. find now. Yeah, it, the last time I was in Paris, which was three years ago, it was I was so disappointed by the food. You it can't was find it. Just dreadful. It really was overpriced. Not good. I mean, we do better here. <laughs> I that well, he was saying the same thing, but there was one place called uh, 
La Biche Bois, and it was amazing. Really? And it was grouse season had just start, just opened, so I had grouse that evening. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I started off with my favorite, um, the deviled eggs. We, we, we would think of them as deviled eggs in the States, but they're not really deviled. It's like a deconstructed deviled egg. So it's just the hard-boiled egg. Do this this Thanksgiving, everyone. Okay. Hard-boiled egg. Instead of deviling it, leave the yolks there, and then they just pipe on this wonderful one-inch thick layer of a very lemony mayonnaise. Oh, wow. And just pop it in. Amazing. Katie, to die for. Really? <laughs> like, it was heaven. I'm going to do that. Yeah. I have a big party the day after Thanksgiving every year for all my friends in Rhode Island, like 25 or 30 people for dinner. I'm gonna do that. Do you do the? Do you call the Thanksgiving leftover party? No, because I don't use turkey. <laughs> <laughs> turkey is off the menu uh, in any shape or form, and there is nothing that even remotely resembles your Thanksgiving dinner. So that you can go back to your leftovers the next day with pleasure. Yes, because <laughs> I mean, really, three straight days of turkey leftovers is pretty just no, discouraging. Yeah, I, you can't eat. You Much as I love it, but yeah. But Actually, Fran- but, but the countryside of France, we were Kate was working on a cassoulet project, so we talked mm-hmm. a lot of cassoulet. Um, it was fig season, pear season, so there was a lot yeah. of fig jam making. I asked her what I could bring her from the states, and you'll love this. She said, "Can you bring me some grits?" Of course, yes, yeah. So she made a huge breakfast Sunday morning, and it had everything because. None of the other people had ever had grits, and yeah. she made a nice brown gra- a gravy, like a sawmill gravy, and it was just... What's a wonderful. sawmill gravy? It's like, you know, milk and with bacon fat and just your basic... So it's a white... Yes. It's like a bechamel. Yes. Milk sauce. Huh. Yes, but with all that great... What's red-eye gravy? I don't know. What's in red-eye gravy? I don't know. I thought that was like ham drippings. It and, is, isn't it? And bake and milk and butter. Or, yeah. You know, ham drinking mil- milk and fat. Flour, excuse me, flour. Would the red-eye gravy not have the milk in it? I think maybe, maybe. it doesn't have milk. So it would just be Did the they drippings? they do it with like some stock or something? They, Who yeah, knows? Really? Well, I don't know. We'll have to look that up. I don't know. That's what Google is for. Yes. So let me ask you this about the French culinary scene, and then we'll move on to something else. Um, one of the things that the French have always done is something that we're rediscovering in this country, which is that sort of artisanal locavore thing. They've never transported their vegetables very far. France is smaller than Texas, after all. And, um, and they've never gone away from artisanal production. But do you, when you were there, did you see more of a retrenchment into the traditional, or were they doing traditional with a more contemporary forward-thinking twist? Or are they just kind of doing their thing the way they've always done it? Well, in my opinion, I think they're doing their thing in the countryside the way they've always done it, which is the reason why people love France and their resistance to change. And that's why as much as we, I don't want to say hate the French, because that's not true. (laughs) As long as we still have that kind of, you know, friction with the French, but there's a reason why they're so steadfast in, in the way they do things, and it's why we embrace it so much and why we're so enamored with it. Everything where I was in the country was all, you know, farm to table, and even the charcuterie, these wonderful um, families that make all the charcuterie in the area, were, they call it seed to sausage. Mm-hmm. So they are doing nice. everything. They are growing the charcuterie hogs that they are mm-hmm. slaughtering. And yeah. 
everything. I mean, we took big old bottles to the farmer's market to fill with rosé. Oh, I love that. I yes. remember going to a place where you actually went to, a, it was basically the equivalent of a gas pump. Exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. so cool. I, <laughs> exactly. I, that just blew my mind. You take a five liter container to a gas pump and you pump your wine out of an underground storage tank. Yes. It was, the okay, I think we should do that. And it costs you know, two francs a liter or something. It was nothing. Yeah. It was pennies. And it's really good. It was pennies. So building on that idea of like, of people sort of um, staying true to their traditions, etc. I know that the South is making quite a comeback in their culinary sort of, shall we say, the way the rest of the country is becoming interested again in Southern cooking. Yes. The South is uh, the new great... black, Katie. Yeah. <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what, that's, <laughs> that's what you'd like to think. <laughs> It is. Southern cooking is the new... I mean, when Marcus Samuelson opens a Southern Influence restaurant in... In Harlem. Harlem. I mean, come on. Yeah, but that's because he's preaching to us basically a Southern traditional audience. True. I mean, the the population in Harlem, there's a lot of people who came up from the South. True. Yeah. Yeah. For instance, my favorite bum locally on the Upper West Side. I recently... I've known this guy for over 30 years. (laughs) Isn't that the weirdest thing? I mean, I'll just digress. My for a favorite bum. Well, you know, I mean, you when you live in the same neighborhood for a long time in New York, just like you know your shopkeepers, you know your yes. bums, right? <laughs> so when I was working as a butcher in the you know late eighties, early nineties, there was a guy who was kind of shapeless and ageless and formless, but he was always exposing himself. And so, and he was always panhandling out in front of our butcher shop, which was like this very cute little French joint on Ninetieth Street and Broadway. And we would go out and be like, Jesus, man, would you just put that thing away? You're scaring the customers. <laughs> anyway, so in subsequent years, I've run into the man again and again and again, and in varying states of disarray on his part. So sometimes he's quite pulled together, and sometimes he's really sick. And so the other day, I ran into him, and I'd just been having dinner with my butcher friends. And um, and I was riding on the bus, and he's on the bus. He's like, hey, miss, hey, miss. So I, sat, I was kind of drunk. So I sat down with him. <laughs> He was totally tidied up. I mean, you know, he still looks a little nutty, but and he has no teeth. His teeth are just like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. It turns out, first of all, that he must have been in his 20s. We thought he was like 50. No. Yeah. He has no wrinkles and just a few gray hairs now. And he's lost all his teeth. He must have been a really bad crackhead. His name was Benjamin Doctor. He was no longer showing me his thing. So anyway, we had this long conversation, and he was from North Carolina. What was he doing in New York? Why do people come to I don't be know. homeless where it's cold? I don't know. I would be homeless in a warm state. I, I would. I'd be homeless in Florida. I have been homeless in a warm state. <laughs> <laughs> oh, please don't I'm tell just me kidding. that. No. Anyway, to go back, I mean, I'm sorry about these all these digressions. I really shouldn't do this. But um, tell me about the ways that Southern traditions, and I'm not just talking about grits and no. black-eyed peas. I'm talking about like core Southern traditional dishes and are they staying true to their core are they going back to their core on a certain level because of the you know new interest in growing your own hogs locally and butchering your own hog making your own charcuterie blah 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 or are they progressing into something new while staying grounded in that old tradition i think it's a a little bit of both you know southern cooking has gotten a bad rap for a lot of different reasons um but fatties uh yeah it you know, traditionally, Southerners, the same as Midwesterners, we've always eaten seasonally. And this bad rap that they haven't eaten seasonally is is BS. Well, and what about the lard 
quotient there. I mean, I, I gained 10 pounds on a five-day visit to Pensacola, Florida for meeting. What were you know, eating? Traditional Fried chicken. Well, no one eats that every day. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were eating it every day because you were on vacation. I guess so, yeah. I mean, the tradition of pickling, like I'm really inspired by all the, you know, the pickling and putting up of things that that, mm-hmm. that resurgence of that because... You know, my grandmother did that. My mother did not do that. Mm. I am doing that. Mm. So I think it's just this generational thing and now this awareness of all that. And, and people, so, but I think they're, they're, for example, doing pickling but putting their own fabulous twist on it. If it's, you know, some kind of jalapeno spice pickle that your grandmother would have never made. Right. Um, you know, they're wonderful southern, you know, chefs that are that are putting twists on old favorites. I mean, I was at Husk probably a month ago, and Katie, you could not have this all the time, but it was the fried chicken skins appetizer <laughs> that Sean Brock was doing <laughs> with his home with his own house-made um, hot sauce that he oh, served yum. with. It. So you dip it in this like wonderful kind of buffalo-y hot sauce. Oh, baby. Yeah, you wouldn't have that all the time, and it was a very small portion, and it was, you know, it was kitschy, but um, I think that we always have eaten seasonally, and that's how most Southerners eat. We don't have fried chicken every day. and Yeah. And because the Food Network might have shown that, because it's a show, that's also, uh, you know, a New York production company that might be writing those recipes. Let's not forget. It's not always <laughs> the Southerner that does it. I guess that's absolutely true. Yeah. Um, so we have hit the halfway mark here, and Joe is going to do a quick sponsor drop for us, and we'll come right back with Libby Summers, the fabulous stylist, author, culinary producer, et cetera, et cetera, all around good time, as I like to say. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, so, folks, do stay tuned for the rest of this show because it should be a lot of fun. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards and Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit www.surreyfarms.com. And are we back? Yes, we are. And you are listening to Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. And in the studio with me is the wonderful Libby Summers, um, who is an accomplished writer. She wrote the Whole Hog Cookbook. She is a culinary producer and a stylist for both television and print media. And um, boy, you wrote the book on style and girl, I got to say. I mean, your food styling is just so exquisite. No, it really is beautiful. I mean, I worked on a lot of books when I was doing book publicity. I worked with Donna Hay. I worked with Rachel Ray. I worked with a lot of people. Beautiful who books. Are really good at making books. Lots of Clarkson Potter books. Yeah. Gorgeous books. Yes. Yeah. Ten Speed. I mean, all the big cookbook publishers. 
I can see why they hire you. Anyway, so now you are working. Speaking of books, nice segue. Katie, working that on was it. genius. <laughs> oh, I sometimes I surprise myself. Now you're working on a new book about baking. Let's hear about it. A sweet and vicious baking with an attitude. Yeah. So what kind of... <laughs> You know, I ask what attitude. It is going to be the, the best. I'm so excited about this book. Like, really excited about this book. Well, now we're in the middle of finishing recipe testing. Um, we actually start shooting the book at the end of this month, so in two weeks. And um, Katie, appreciate that. It's it's they're fun. Everything I do is like home cooking recipes. Right. I will give you a couple of stretches, but I want it to be accessible. To everyone, sure, so you don't need fancy equipment to be absolutely able to follow these not, recipes, absolutely right? not. Um, but they're fun flavor twists mm-hmm. on traditional recipes, or it's doing something with a traditional. If it's if it's a vanilla cake, Katie, it's going to be the best vanilla cake, and it's going to have some crazy other aspect to it. For example, mine, it's called a fairground attraction cake. Nice, um, great band, by the way, from the late eighties. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it is this wonderful vanilla cake, but it it happens to be piled to the ceiling with cotton candy that comes all oh, the cool. way off of it. Like it's just, and it's so simple. Like everything is very simple, but it's it's very theatrical kind of, and right. a lot of hot and sweet and sour and sweet, a lot of candy inspired recipes because I have a big sweet tooth. Do you like a lemon head cake? There's a, there might be some good and plenty cupcakes kind of ish, some anise cupcakes. With well, a very I love sweet. that flavor. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I tend to um, drink my calories, so I don't have as much of a sweet tooth as I used to. But <laughs> but I certainly know plenty of people who would enjoy this. Um, what do you think makes it really different from other baking books? Well, I tell you, I was on a shoot in Milwaukee for a few weeks. Um, doing some stuff for uh, Kohl's, actually, um, Food Network product, and Bobby Flay has a new line mm-hmm. of beautiful products at Kohl's, and we were there shooting, um, and uh, so at night, of course, I'm there with all this time on my hands, so I went to the big bookstore and pulled every baking book off the shelf, because I needed to like hone in on the inspiration of the visual of this mm-hmm. book, because it's so much of what I do, too, and Katie, they all kind of, to me... They have a lot of similarities. They're beautiful, beautiful books. Yeah, the photography is oh always my really gosh. good. Just yeah. gorgeous books, but they all kind of have that same aesthetic. And I knew that, that this baking book was not going to be a traditional kind of baking book. And plus it's going to have some, you know, my my mouth inside of it too with the <laughs> writing. Um, so I, it really helped me kind of pinpoint how I knew we wanted to shoot it, which is going to be in a very editorial way and much more. What do you mean by that? Well, one, one image in particular, I can tell you, I have something called a dude's cookie an aficionado cookie, as it were. Um, it's like a guy's bourbon cookie. Cool. And I've invited all my favorite kind of best dressed, guys my favorite guys in savannah and a few that are flying in to kind of do this sartorialist kind of shoot with that cookie nice very vanity fair kind of how funny but you know but there's still a bunch of guys sitting around eating cookies yeah like it's still that (laughs) but these are these great looking guys and and i'm not beautiful i'm not i'm not informing anything about i want them to come how they normally would Uh come if they were getting dressed up or doing something Mm -hmm. i will tell you that one of them ask if I he's flying in it's a wonderful photographer friend of mine Ben Fink who lives here in the city 
Um, he's flying in. He's like, can you have a low boy Harley Davidson there for me? I was like, yeah, sure, Ben. Whatever you want, we'll have you it. You want to eat cookies on a motorcycle, dude? <laughs> sure. I'm all over that. <laughs> but it's that kind of thing. Like, it's How the, fun, the fairground attraction cake we're actually shooting at a carnival. Excellent. When, you know, we're just taking it out because that's what I do for a living, too. I right. want it. It's all about the food still, but bigger. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that actually is the perfect segue to um, talking about your work as a stylist and a little bit about what we were talking about before the show, Mm -hmm. which is you have a whole perception that is informed by food that doesn't stop at the borders of the table or the stove. It goes on to inform dress and decor, furniture, I suppose, or color schemes or whatever it is, what you call lifestyle. Let's talk a little bit about that, how you translate what you do in the realm of food into the rest of your lifestyle and how you see that as kind of a vision that you have that isn't so limited as most people think of who are cookbook authors. They don't really have a vision beyond the stove. You have a much greater vision. What is that? Oh, I do. And and, uh, and thanks for asking. It's something that people brought to me because I guess that I had always said before, if I was trying to explain something to someone, I would say, well, you know, it's that it's that brown black color. It's that strie that goes up the side of a pecan, right? You know, when it falls from the tree. Or it's that that bumpling effect that it's on a clementine when it's you know it's been picked a little too early or you know I always reference something with food mm-hmm. if it's a color of my dress or if it's a wallpaper that I want to use or you know something that I might be doing when I'm styling a set or styling food and it just I realize that food what I put in my mouth informs everything creatively. In my life, and that's kind of what we're doing. Um, that my photographer friend Chia Chong and I have on our website, Salted in Style. We take this food item each week, and we let it inform everything for the week. If it's a floral arrangement, if it's artwork, if it's a table setting, uh-huh. if it's a story, I do a lot of like behind the scenes kind of stories. We'll take a picture, and I'll build the story around it, or I'll build a story before we go and shoot it. So the wonderful women who work with us, because it's a team collaborative effort, because I always think it's better if more people are involved. Sure. And uh, it's just that. It's it's something I might sketch on a piece of Muslim fabric and want to work in a picture because I saw the side of a strawberry and I don't, it's a sickness, Katie. I'm sick. <laughs> I'm sick. I don't know if it's sick. Maybe it, a little obsessive compulsive. It is. I mean, I'll wake up in the middle of the night. You ask my husband. I keep, you know, you always like music people keep a yeah. tablet by their bed. I will like write some crazy thing. I'll be on a train. We did a whole story on onions, spring onions and white lace because I had this vision on the train going into Philadelphia for a book signing about white lace and spring onions really it's sick katie yeah well i can kind of relate i'm having a little bit of that moment with fabrics right now i see that katie's wearing a gorgeous (laughs) scarf that's a variety of fabrics all silk it's a couple of it's two different fabrics and and this is my first effort but anyway we'll talk about it afterwards but but i i am like a total fabric junkie and i always have been but i finally i got my sewing machine out and bought some equipment and i'm like i'm in production now i'm in production i actually kind of like it i like ironing too I mean, I love... (laughs) Isn't that sick? I hate every other form of domestic labor, but I love to cook and I love to sew. 
and I haven't sewn in 30 years. Did you have to take like a home ec class? No, I did not. Up? And I actually think that people should be obliged to take home ec. It's one of my pet hobby horses on this program is bringing home ec it back into the school system. And not just for girls, for boys too. Because mm-hmm. I think everybody needs the rudimentary elements of cooking, keeping a checkbook. Um, you know, and home ec doesn't have to be limited to just girly stuff. I mean, it could include some vocational stuff like... I don't know, light carpentry or, you know, just things so you don't have to call somebody in and pay them $75 an hour to mount a cabinet or build a shelf. Right. Everybody needs to know how to do that stuff. And we have so gotten away from that. And not that I don't, you know, that I begrudge anybody who does that for a living, but believe me, you don't have to spend $75 an hour to be that. I was at the Marameco store yesterday looking at some fabric because oh, I use yes. their fabric occasionally and I ended up buying this shirt and when I was checking out, the girl had the audacity. You would have loved her, Katie, because she <laughs> said, you know what, this shirt responds well to an iron. And I said, that makes one of us. Who would say, like that was as she's folding it up, she says, you know, this shirt responds well to an iron. That's a very interesting way of putting it too, responds well. I almost well. handed it back to her. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, that will never happen in my household. Yes. So just saying, yeah. You just Unless it plugs it in and rubs it on itself. No, it's not going to happen. That will happen in the future, though. Now, tell me, what is the hardest thing? We only have a few more minutes. I wanted to kind of get down to, um, like, how did you, you know, to go back to your sort of aesthetic vision about everything from food to, you know, tableware to fabrics, blah, blah, blah. How did you get your start? Like, where did you start with this? And, you know, you started as a, did you start as a stylist? Is well, that correct? I started cooking in the yachting industry, which I still actually cook for one gentleman a couple of weeks out of the year. No kidding. Yes. Nice. And on boats of a certain size, which are 100 and under sailboats, which I worked on primarily in that, you know, 65, 70 range, mm-hmm. um, Everything is done, you know, it's a party every night and everything. So I'm always throwing parties and always trying to, I think it all started there. And then I ended Mm -hmm. up landing in Savannah and started food styling and then, you know, worked in television. And And you were food styling for media, for like newspapers there? I took every job I could just to get my foot into it for free. I did everything I could for free. Wow. I came, I laugh about the first job I went on, Katie. I had this big old kit. Like I thought, now I travel with a tweezer and a spray yeah. bottle. Like I don't need any of that crap. I travel, I style very naturally. But I had I had read everything online and I needed all this stuff. It was like I needed a truck to get in all my food styling equipment <laughs> to this burger job. And on my website to this day, there's one shot from that very first shoot that I did that I refused to take off. It's a burger. And I've sent style burgers for big corporations. I might have seen that shot because I think I saw that burger shot. Oh my, right? I keep it on there because it was the first well, shoot I ever did. Also really appetizing. Well, thank you. I I look at it it now with a discerning eye and say, oh, my God, that is the worst style burger ever. But it's just it's personal and I will not take it (laughs) off the site. Well, I wondered how you'd gotten the edges of the burger so deliciously and fabulously brown without looking flattened. Um, that is well, you know when you do a burger, use a blue to- blowtorch. No, I that was probably hand painted on with kitchen bouquet. That's the secret right. of the South, speaking okay. the devil. Yeah. And you know when burgers, when like when we do them for commercials, they actually were deep fried really quickly, flash fried, so you get that kind of crisp. Yep. And then I go in and paint. I think a, a lot of people that. actually do that in the restaurant industry. I've talked to a bunch of chefs because you know I write for food arts also and yes. I did a piece on steaks and burgers and blah 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 and a lot of people were doing that. They were um, flash frying 
their burgers in in deep fat, and then they would either cook it in a sous vide in a yep. in a plastic thing, or they would cook it sous vide until it was the right temperature, and then flash fry it ah, so it looked nice. Yeah, but that's how we do it for camera. Very interesting. And what has changed? Unfortunately, we have to wrap this up. But I mean, God, I could have gone on and on with you, honey. Um, <laughs> what What has changed in the industry since you started out? Like. Food styling? Yeah. Like, is there more work? Is there less work? Is it more um, natural or less natural? I, Do think, you- I think that there's a lot of people who, you know, they've got a blog and they take a picture and they styled it or they went to a, a workshop once and, right. and now they're a food stylist, but... And God bless them. Keep doing it. I mean, sure. it's no different than me going to take every first job, but I think there's a lot of people now in the industry, but part of it... It's not only having the ability to style, it's kind of this unflappability that you have to have when you're on set and working. I work with, you know, a bunch of celebrity cookbook stuff and, you know, you just have to, I always make sure that it's their book and I know that firsthand it's their book. I want it to be exactly how you want it to be. Mm -hmm. I want this article to be exactly how you want it to be because it's your name on it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm styling it, but it's your food and it. And I think sometimes stylists come in with an attitude of they want it to be their way. I have a look. Yeah. Well, forget the look. The look needs to be the client's look. Right. But that's an interesting balance to strike because on the one hand, you want to keep getting work and you want to show that you have a style, I would imagine. I do that on my blog. I save that for personal things that people look at. So when you show a portfolio, you're showing a variety of different ways you can work as opposed to like, here's what I can do. So I will tell you, Katie, I just did not get a job recently because I have nothing in my portfolio that's healthy. And I put that in air quotes. (laughs) But you don't have healthy styling stuff. I'm like, well, what do you need? I mean, what is healthy? Can you tell me what that's three radish slices and a bean sprout on a plate? No, I don't have that. Oh, and by the way, don't eat sprouts. Why? Because they are vectors for foodborne disease. Is that true? Yes, ma'am. Not so much the... I, I mean, any sprout that you don't cook, absolutely a vector for disease. I did not know that. Yes, ma'am, because that growing medium, the water, is yeah. like the perfect solution in which to develop E. coli and salmonella. So if you remember last year, this is like my favorite story, but in Germany last year, something like 47,000 people became ill and nearly 4,000 people died from eating sprouts the seeds were contaminated. They came from Egypt. They were sprouted in Germany. And people all across Europe got sick. And first they pointed the finger at Spanish cucumbers and the Spanish agricultural market took the biggest hit. And then it turned out it was these freaking sprouts. seeds from Egypt because the seeds become contaminated and it's very hard to clean them. Very rarely do I eat do a sprout. Do not eat a sprout. <laughs> I think they should be banned myself. I Thank mean, you. sorry to the people who are in the sprout Katie, business. Just, I feel sorry for you. just made my day. <laughs> <laughs> I know, because everybody eats them because they think they're supposed to, but they're really not that good, Thank are they? Thank God I don't have to I eat know. another sprout. I said that to another friend of mine. He was like, God, what a relief. <laughs> I hate the damn things, but I always think I'm doing something good for my body. You're not. You're just, you're exposing yourself to God, disease. So good to know. So we have to wrap it up. Unfortunately, we're even over time here. Um, thank you so much. Thanks Libby, for, for coming me. out. This was so great. People check out the book, Whole Hog Cookbook. It's on every bookstore and Amazon, et cetera, et cetera. And then look for, um, what Sweet is it called? Vicious, Sweet and Vicious. Sweet and Vicious. Yeah. It's September uh, 2013. That's another right. Rizzoli book. And it's so a Rizzoli book, so yes. you know the quality, the values are going to be great. And next week, folks, we have a really interesting guest. Dr. Richard Raymond will be joining us. Dr. Raymond is the former Undersecretary for food, for food Safety in the USDA from 2005 to 2008, and he works as a food safety and public health consultant 
primarily to the cattle industry. Oh, yeah. We're going to go to town on Dr. Raymond. So um, (laughs) thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you next week. And again, thanks to my sponsor and to my wonderful engineer, Joe. Um, This has been Straight No Chaser with Katie Kiefer and Libby Summers. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.